Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I am super excited about our guest tonight, Dr. Hector Garcia. He is actually a personal friend of mine. Um, we met several years ago, and I actually talked him into doing a bike ride with me across a big section of uh, Missouri last fall. We uh, rode uh, across the Kitty Trail. And, and we had a nice, like, four-hour drive. And the thing is that we didn't get to talk a whole lot because he was preparing for his upcoming TED Talk. And I was kind of like his guinea pig for him to practice on um, the whole time we were on our bikes, when we were in the car. So I think I had memorized his TED Talk just as good as he did. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched his TED Talk, and it was, it was really, really good, too. We're, we'll put a link in the, uh, in the chat room to his TED Talks. Um, uh, so uh, before we get on to Dr. Garcia, I'm going to introduce our other guest, Dr. Daryl Ray. Uh, Dr. Daryl Ray is the founder and president of this nonprofit organization that I'm volunteering for and that Todd's volunteering for and all the leaders in the um, in the uh, chat and all of the helpline agents in the chat are volunteering for. He has been a psychologist for over 30 years. He's the author of four books, including The God Virus, How Religion Infects Our Lives and Culture, and Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. Dr. Ray has been a student of religion for most of his life and holds a master's degree in religion, as well as a bachelor's degree in sociology and anthropology, and a doctorate in psychology. Now, you hinted a little bit about Dr. Hector Garcia's amazing um, bio, but I'm going to go into it a little bit more in depth. Is that all right, Todd? Oh, yeah. Go for it. All right. Now, Dr. Garcia is a world expert in treating PTSD. He's a respected psychologist, teacher, and researcher in San Antonio who explores how evolutionary psychology and biology have influenced human tendencies towards violence in religion. He is also an assistant professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. He has a regular blog on psychology today and is the author of Alpha God, the psychology of religious violence and oppression and Sex, Power, and Partisanship, How Evolutionary Science Makes Sense of Our Political Divide. So this is bound to be a great discussion uh, as we, because uh, we'll also discuss concrete ways to identify the effects of religious trauma that uh, you folks in the audience may be experiencing. I am going to now unmute Dr. Ray and, oh boy. Uh, ah, here we go. <laughs> and Dr. Garcia. Uh, guys, welcome so much. Uh, welcome to RFRX. Thank you so much for being here today. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks for all those introductions. All the other <laughs> good information. Well, you guys are well-versed and highly qualified to talk about this with us tonight. Well, I've been looking forward to this. When uh, we were first talking about what we were going to schedule, and then the idea came up that uh, that Hector might be a good one. It, it reminded me that Hector and I had an amazing phone conversation. It, what's it been, a month and a half, two months ago? It was before the, before the crisis, I believe, Hector. Yeah. 
and uh, we were I was talking to him about religious trauma and he was talking to me about PTSD and we were comparing notes and before you know it this this conversation turned into an amazing learning experience for me I learned stuff from Hector I I think you learned something maybe from my end but I, it was really worth uh, we wish everybody could have been listening in on that phone call so then Hector and I decided why don't we try to have that conversation again and uh, in this format. So that's what we're going to be doing this evening. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, so it'll be a little different than uh, the last uh, few RFRXs. Um, both you and um, Dr. Uh, Garcia are going to be kind of just having a discussion and Todd and I will sit back and be a part of the participants. But um, just as a reminder, um, if you folks have a question, any question that pops up during the conversation, type it in the chat and uh, we'll make sure to uh, ask them during the Q&A session at the end. And uh, if you also want to hang out after the Q&A session, we're going to open up the lines for everyone to kind of chat and uh, just hang out and say hi to Dr. Ray, Dr. Garcia, and even Todd. Uh, so guys, today you are going to talk to us about religious trauma syndrome. And I kind of know what all three words mean, but when you put them together, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what that entails so, yeah. well okay well well let's start off big picture and i want to i want to ask hector if he would give us an overview the thumbnail the you know single uh pass at what what is trauma what is ptsd what is not trauma and, and we'll kind of start there and we'll work out from there because uh, we've got a lot to discuss on that so could you lead us through your view of what PTSD is or and what trauma is and isn't? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, what, what interests me is that, you know, religious trauma syndrome is not technically a, a, a formal recognized diagnosis per se, but it, it probably spans several known diagnoses as we were talking the other day. Um, some of which may be PTSD. So. So PTSD, you have to experience the trauma and at least for uh, the diagnostic manual that we use to diagnose psychiatric conditions, the DSM, you know, it's, it's something where your life was at risk or there was a threat to your life or there was a sexual assault or something, something that, uh, you know, puts you in, in danger or, or the perception of a, of a credible threat of danger. Um, and that's, that's, you know, more of, of a, a clinical definition of trauma. Now that's not to be confused with trauma in the vernacular sense, because in the vernacular sense, people can describe, you know, losing a job as traumatic, right? They can describe a divorce as traumatic, but that's, that wouldn't meet DSM criteria for, for PTSD, mm -hmm. for a, the A criteria for, for PTSD, which is having experienced a trauma. Um, four symptom clusters with PTSD. One is what we call re-experiencing symptoms. So you re-experience the events in different ways, memories that pop into your head, nightmares, or you see some kind of uh, trigger. Um, but that re-experiencing uh, is not a pleasant experience. You know, the adrenaline goes up, the emotions are very intense and raw and painful as if the event had just happened, whereas it could have happened 50 years ago. Um, and then you have hyperarousal, which includes being hyper alert, hyper vigilance, just watching your surroundings for threat, getting angry, getting irritable really easily, uh, not being able to concentrate, not being able to sleep, 
Then you have avoidance, which is uh, you know avoiding places or situations that remind you of the traumatic experience, avoiding memories of the traumatic experience, pushing the memories out, trying to distract yourself, things like that. And there's a whole bunch of cognitive sequela too, um, you know, not trusting people, thinking that there's something wrong with you, you know, being very self-critical, things of that nature. So, so broadly speaking, those, those are the, the, the four main symptom clusters of PTSD. Okay, right. And that's an, it's in, important for us to realize there's four symptom clusters, and you have to meet a certain number of those and a certain intensity for it to be to trip the trigger, so to speak, to go over the edge of what PTSD would be for someone. Am I correct? Yeah, to the diagnostic criteria, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right, okay. So when, so when you're working with somebody and you're asking them questions, you're, you're trying to, let's say, you know, you're, your first session with somebody and you're just listening to what they're saying, what would be some red flags that would wave uh, in that conversation? You, you'd hear somebody say something, and, you know, imagine it's any one of the people that's listening to us right now and you're asking them about their life or whatever, what would be a red flag to say, okay, I want to explore that more? Or, Well, you know, a, a trauma history. And, okay. and you know, um, I think in, in a certain sense, as far as PTSD concern, is concerned, you know, it's, it's the same animal irrespective of what kind of trauma it is, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. combat related or if it's a sexual assault or if it's something that happened through religion in some mm -hmm. way, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to beat the devil out of you kind of thing, you know, <laughs> from, from, you know, very um, hyper religious parents or something of that nature or sexual abuse from, from a priest or, or a clergy member you know, um, it's still, it's still, you know, the same set of symptoms are, tend to arise. Right, so a, right. a trauma history, you know, um, yeah. have you ever been assaulted? Have you, have you ever witnessed somebody getting hurt or killed? Have you ever been physically, has everybody, has anybody threatened you to, you really felt like you were going to get hurt or killed? Um, that, that can, can trigger all the, the symptoms that we had just discussed. Right, right. You know, something that, occurred to me a few years ago is that the very the the witnessing part I, I don't think I think the average public doesn't realize the witnessing part can be very tra very traumatizing if not traumatic sure. and but within the religious context why would where does that happen and I got to thinking I watched I've watched people being spanked by their parents because they didn't um, memorize their bible verses or something like that. And I, I, I personally was spanked when I was a kid for religious reasons. Not, not very much, thankfully. It was a minor and minor part of my, my childhood. But other people I know did get spanked rather severely for failing to do religiously oriented things. So there's two components of that. That's me seeing it happen, and it's them experiencing it. Is that, is that potentially a... a piece of this trauma could it be I, I don't know i i think it is i mean i'm sitting here talking to you because i think it is what about you well the thing the thing is i mean i'm not sure that spankings would result in ptsd but but the broader question is what is re religious trauma syndrome I, and, mm. and what fascinates me about this is this is a, a hugely understudied problem 
you know, and I, I think there's, there's all kinds of different things that can develop from, from, you know, um, extreme religious practices and, and the kind of abuses that, that happen. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even from, from physical abuse, from emotional abuse, from the brainwashing that can occur, or just leaving a religion and being ostracized by your social support network. I mm -hmm. mean, is that what we conceive of as religious trauma syndrome? We need to do more. We need to do more research. This, this is an area that is just begging for more empirical research. Mm -hmm. so we can understand, mm -hmm. you know, what, what this thing looks like. And is it distinct from other kinds of, of you know, clinical phenomena? It is. And I know in the, in the chat line, we, we see this virtually every day and sometimes every hour. It's just ridiculous how much we see it. People come to us and they say, I'm, I'm, I've lost my identity or I, I don't know who I am anymore. I've, yeah. I've left, I got kicked out of my house or even if they're adults and they weren't kicked out, nobody talks to me anymore. I've lost my entire social support network and I'm, I'm, I see myself drinking too much or I'm, I'm get engaging in self-destructive behavior or something like that. And while that may or may not meet trauma criteria, it's certainly uh, related to the abuse, the, the isolation, social isolation. I don't know. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah. And, and what comes to mind immediately when I think about, about that, I mean, I, so many people that I've, that I've met in recent years, um, have talked to me about how when they came out as a non-believer, they were just ostracized by their peers, their loved ones, mm -hmm. people they their whole life, their parents, you know, they disowned. Um, and what immediately comes to mind is clinical depression, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, we are social primates and this COVID-19 virus kind of uh, bring this, brings this all into stark relief how when we're isolated, our brains don't like that. I mean, people are struggling yeah. with this isolation. And so, so I think depression tends to sit in. So what is depression? Low mood, feeling down, depressed, low, um, crying spells, um, not having energy or motivation, having negative thoughts about yourself, uh, a negative outlook about the future. I mean, there's no question that, that being rejected by your social support network uh, that's a pretty, pretty common path to depression. Yeah. And I think depression, it's probably more, we could probably talk about depression more as a, as a byproduct of this, of, of religious rejection and all than than even trauma. And I, and I think it's far more common. The average person who loses their entire social sex, social network is probably going to experience some level of, of depression. And it may not may not even take that much just the loss of one because you're kind of going through a grief and loss process um i mean no i know you know somebody a mormon or jehovah's witness and and their family no longer talks to them that they've got to go through some kind of grief and loss process i'm i'm sure absolutely where do i belong where's my who who am i i mean identity yeah. issues you know yeah right right we hear the identity issues are really uh front and center for a lot of people. I, I used to know who I was. In fact, I, I can almost name a couple of people that are watching us tonight who I've had this conversation with. I used to know who I was as a Christian and now I have no idea. And of course, sometimes it comes out as, what's my moral framework? I used to know what was right and wrong when I was a Christian and now I don't. I, I oftentimes say, well, 
you're not murdering anybody, are you? So you probably do know what's right and wrong. <laughs> it, it's just they've been so brainwashed that religion is required to be moral, and now they don't know where to go with that. And I, I, I defer to actually to Todd how much we see this over and over again. I, I don't know what my new moral compass should be. Well, listen, and, and that, that very point you just made is exactly why, if I may, <laughs> respect the hell out of RFR just because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a safety net for people to, so that people know, hey, you're, you're not alone. You're not defective. Questioning is not, is not a defect. Questioning is, is uh, you know, you should question. You should question mm -hmm. everything. You're not going to be rejected for that. And there are people who, who are like you. So I, I think that's a tremendous, tremendous service. So uh, Hector, we did, a, you and I agreed on five questions we want to do in the pre-survey. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to talk maybe about each one of those briefly and tell people to understand why those are even in there. Why, why'd we ask those questions? And- um, uh, Al, would you like me to share the results? Yes, yeah, show us the results. All right. Uh, do you want me to run through the, the... Yeah, go ahead. Okay. The first question was um, about intrusive thoughts that frequently prevent um, folks from enjoying their lives in the moment. And it was about 58% uh, said yes, and uh, a third said no, and 10% uh, were like, no, nah, not sure. The second question about uh, guilt and shame-based thoughts during sex or masturbation, it was um, close to 50-50 with uh, another 10% not sure. Um, either. And then uh, experiencing panic attacks or strong emotions uh, when you see or hearing religious things or ideas, 40% said yes, 55% said no, and 6% said I don't know. Number four, do religious ideas still insert themselves into decisions, uh, everyday decisions? Uh, and again, it was about 50-50 with 8% um, saying not sure. And as to a fear of hell, um, three quarters of the um, folks uh, do not have a, a recurring fear of hell, but 12% do. Good. Okay. Great. Well, Hector, let's talk kind of each one of these as much as you want to throw in here. You and I talked about these. I, I was trying to put together a set of questions that would um, kind of touch on the symptoms that people would experience. And, and I want to be clear here neither Hector nor I are trying to diagnose anybody and you should not use these as diagnostic tools either but you might want to use these as to help understand how religion may have impacted you and maybe some of the work you might want to do with a therapist or you know on some learning some new skill like mindfulness um, or other things but uh, so let's jump in Hector any question you want to you want to particularly focus on or do you start at the top yeah yeah now so, let's start from the bottom you know what would i if i may because i yeah go for it. really interesting and this this is this is continuation conversation that you and i had is mm -hmm. this idea of of health fears you know and as we were talking i, I kind of started thinking wow you know if you genuinely believe that by leaving your religion, for example, or committing a sin, that if you, if you really believe that you're going to burn in hell forever, to me, that, that is very similar to a criterion A stressor per the DSM uh, criteria for PTSD. I mean, it's, it's not too dissimilar if, say, you know, from, say, if you 
had an abusive spouse who said, I, you know, if you ever leave me, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to mm -hmm. cut you or they're threatening mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, in some way like that, you know? Um, so if you really believe that, I can see how that could, could result in, in, uh, some of the the uh, clinical sequelae, the clinical the symptoms that we had discussed earlier. In fact, you know, some people I've t I've spoken to. We need more research. You know, we need more research. This is speculative, but boy, we need more research on this because I've I've heard people talking about who have left religion just being mortified, getting bad dreams of burning in hell, um, be, because they think, well, if I left if I left religion, is that does that really mean I've given up my salvation? Mm -hmm. uh, um, getting really nervous when they go around, you know, when they drive past their church or something like that, you know, they're like, you know, physiological symptoms, like their heart starting to race, things like that. So that, that to me is fascinating. Um, you know, I'm, I, I was never a believer, so I, I never really had that particular fear, but for some people, as you know, it is very real and very. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to jump in and say that, our poll results of 12%, which is uh, eight, eight people, I guess, is I think about what we see on the chat line relative to the, the number of clients that come in and talk to us. I, I would easily guess that somewhere around 10% of our clients are um, uh, experience this kind of symptomology around fear of hell. And I would like to just ask Todd briefly, Todd, what would your assessment be the number of people that express a, a, a real difficulty with fear of hell among our chatters? Mm, maybe 25% or so. Oh, oh, you think it's even higher. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's the underlying reasons why they come out. They may not come out right away and talk about hell. Yeah, right. It'll, it'll boil down to that. Okay. So fear of hell is definitely driving people to us and driving people to talk about, you know, their inability to focus on things, their terror of leaving their family, you know, and, and even after somebody leaves Hector, they get pummeled with messages. Well, you've left us, so you're going to hell. I mean, people say that out loud and to their face. It's very disrespectful, of course. Yeah. But it's, um, it's a tough thing to have to face if you're wanting to get out of that stuff. Especially if you have been, if you have been uh, conditioned for so many years since a kid to believe these things. I mean, it's, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's a hard, uh, uh, you know, pattern to, to rid yourself of. Even, you know, even if, you, even if you, you stop believing, you stop going to church. I mean, those patterns are there. Those fears are, are, mm -hmm. are well-worn. So. Right, yeah. And it's hard to get away from it because it was, as we've talked about in previous times uh, in, in this series, you, the incredibly deep programming that people get starting when they're, you know, two, three, four, five years old, that programming was there long before they had a rational ability to, to think about what they're being taught. And what we hear and what we see at, at the chat line is, I have this irrational fear of hell. I wake up in cold sweats at night. I all I have to do is see a billboard, you know, and, and it, it, it sends me over the edge. I can't concentrate at work and those kinds of things. That's, that's pretty powerful. And when you talk to them, you realize that they, they, it, it was what I was taught as a child and I can't get rid of it. So when do you, when do you look at that? Let's say that that sounds to me like trauma. 
I mean, it just does. How, do, is there an ad, aspect of that that you think you would have recommended approach to if you were treating somebody? And I'm not, I'm not into treating people. I'm just saying, what, what would you see if you had a client sitting before you like that and they were saying, I can't get to sleep at night because of hell? How would you explore that? I, I don't know. Is there anything you'd like to? Well, well, I think that this is, this is a great question. And um, I am a strong proponent of evidence-based psychotherapies, um, cognitive behavioral therapies, for example. Um, so, you know, we've studied what works and what doesn't work for various uh, psychiatric conditions. Um, and uh, before we started doing that, you know, treatment was kind of, uh, um, they were kind of they were kind of generalist in nature, one, mm -hmm. one treatment fits all. But for things like PTSD, for things like depression, for things like panic disorder, for things like OCD, uh, they just weren't very effective. So a lot of people don't know this, but, but um, just like anything you might get in the pharmacy at the pharmacy uh, department at your grocery store, you know, even, even something as simple as NyQuil or Tylenol or something like that, that's been through research trials. And once enough research uh, evidence accumulates to show that that medication does what it says it's supposed to do, and it's not going to poison you, <laughs> it's not going to have bad side effects, then it can be released on the market. Well, similar kinds of studies have been done for non-medication treatments. And, um, such as such as you know uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, so I would strongly recommend getting you know going to a licensed clinician, um, get a thorough diagnostic workup and and uh, a diagnostic interview, and see if you have any of our known psychiatric disorders, um, because there are specific treatments for specific problems. Right. And, and some of this stuff sounds like obsessive compulsive disorder, right? You get these intrusive mm -hmm. thoughts and you do all these, these um, rituals to, to try and mitigate that, the thought from coming into your head. Uh, so, you know, there's a fine line between that kind of pathology and, you know, let's say religious rituals where you're crossing yourself or praying the rosary kind of methodically to, to mm -hmm. rid yourself of, of, of you know, uh, whatever sinful thoughts you may have or something of that nature. We do get a lot of people saying, I'm having trouble stopping my habit of wanting to pray. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I've known people who've been out of religion for decades and they still catch themselves. And it's, you know, it's no crime. It's no, it's, there's nothing wrong with that tendency, but it certainly comes from a very early training about how to respond to crises. Pray instead of doing a, a good self-assessment of where you want to be with respect to the crisis. Pray, push the negative thoughts out of your mind, push the sinful thoughts out of your mind. Yeah, right. But the only problem with that is that tends to make things worse. Yeah. You know, um, there's a, a, you know, because, so what happens when you push a thought out of consciousness is it, is it comes back. Mm -hmm. That's what's known as the rebound effect. So the more yeah. you push out, the more it comes back. Yeah. And, and so, you know, um, evidence-based psychotherapies for PTSD and, and obsessive compulsive disorders involve going towards the memory or the thought repeatedly till, you know, till there's no more anxiety related. Great. To yeah. But pushing thoughts away, trying to neutralize them, try, you know, that just makes it worse. It just, it just intensifies them. I call that the don't think of the red elephant 
problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you just thought of a red elephant, you have just proven Hector's point right there. When yeah, you, try, you try not to do something, it's like your brain wants to do it even, even more. Yeah, and, yeah. And actually religion creates that, uh, when, when religion tells you don't think about sex, <laughs> don't, don't think about masturbating, don't think about pornography, you know, don't, don't, don't. And, and so we get the phenomena, for example, important that the highest consumers of pornography in the United States are the zip codes that are the most religious. So exactly. there's probably something going on there, I, I'm guessing. And we do still need more research, but there's actually quite a bit of research around that particular issue. Or pastors who get, who get busted with prostitutes or, oh, yeah. you know, people who are on the, you know, being gay is... Sin, they they actually come out as gay eventually, you know. So so yeah. that speaks to our very first question in the survey: Do you have intrinsic thoughts that frequently prevent you from enjoying yourself in the moment? And here we have fifty-eight percent of the respondents said yes to that. Yeah. So and that speaks directly to the notion of these intrusive thoughts are there. What do I do with those thoughts? Yeah. And and that's where a well-trained therapist can really can really help if they're properly trained in CBT or some other evidence-based methodology, they can help you actually pretty quickly learn some new skills that will help, help you uh, move, move on or where, where you want to go in your life. And, and I can't stress that enough, you know, to do, to do the evidence-based psychotherapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, if you have a condition like that. Um, because uh, can you, uh, do you mind defining evidence-based um, therapy before uh, moving on? I've had a couple of questions in the chat. Yeah, well, well, let's take PTSD, for example. I mean, like I mentioned, these are psychotherapies that have been studied repeatedly to, to um, and, you know, when enough evidence accumulates to show that something works, then that, that gets systematized and put into like a, like a protocol that gets followed through the course of, of treatment. It's like training. So, so um, let's take prolonged exposure, for example, for, for, for PTSD. So, um, so when you push memories out of, your, out of your mind, they rebound. And so you get these intrusive uh, you know, um, thoughts, these intrusive memories. Uh, if you push them out during the day, your brain will just say, okay, I'll, I'll try to process this memory while you're sleeping. So people get nightmares. So, um, what that treatment involves is not avoiding your memories, but going over them and going over them and going over them. So for example, um, you know, uh, patients that I see will make audio recordings of their traumatic experiences, very detailed, uh, take those home and, and listen to those every day. So eventually what happens is they stop being intrusive. It's not like erasing memories, right? We're not, you can't erase a memory, but it's, it's, it's not intrusive anymore. And whatever uh, anxiety the person experienced in relation to that memory just ratchets down every time the person hears, hears the recording. Um, and another, another component of prolonged exposure therapy is going out to public places or doing, experiencing, um, you know, going out and exposing yourself to stimuli that make you anxious. So for PTSD, it's being in a crowd, for example. So we will have our patients, you know, do certain field exercises, so to speak, where today you're going to go to Walmart and walk around for a certain amount of time or, you know, or the, the shopping mall or sit in a restaurant. You do that over and over and over and over until, until your anxiety has been extinguished. 
So evidence-based psychotherapies are more training oriented. And that's just one kind of evidence-based psychotherapy. They're training oriented. It's different than talk therapy. It's different from a kind of therapy where you just come in and wrap with somebody in an open-ended, unstructured way. Not to knock those kinds of psychotherapies because you can learn a tremendous amount about yourself, um, but they're not going to make PTSD go away or obsessive compulsive disorder go away. What, uh, this might be a bit of a curveball, but what would be like the opposite of an evidence-based therapy? Something maybe that's been done for a while that has been shown to not work? Well, um, like spanking perhaps or something? <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you a bizarre example. I, and I, this, you cannot make this crap up. Um, so there was a, a, a movement oh, several years back called the rebirthing therapy, where when somebody experiences a trauma, they re so, so they, it, it's kind of very cultish, you know, I don't know, it's, it's bizarre. So um, uh, your therapist or your, 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 uh, whoever's making this intervention wraps you up in a bunch of blankets and a bunch of people lay on you and you struggle to get out. And when you get out, you feel this sensation of being rebirthed. It's like they're simulating the womb. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And in fact, you know, one young woman died when, when they were trying to do this therapy because they crushed her. Um, that's an example of a non-evidence-based psychotherapy. Just talk therapy where you're just wrapping with somebody is not an evidence-based psychotherapy. Right, right. So I, I think it's those evidence-based psychotherapies are more important when you, when you really have uh, you know, um, a definitive diagnosis, uh, such as PTSD, depression, OCD, panic disorder, um, you know, uh, borderline personality disorder, for example, things like that. There's a, there's a whole cadre of, of therapies that have had plenty of evidence and research for the last 30 years. Actually, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have enough evidence to say anything worked. That's so right. In the last 30 years, especially the last 10 or 15 years, we've had a massive amount of new evidence and new research, and we're pretty darn sure we know how to treat specific diagnostic uh, uh, things that, you know, certain diagnoses. Uh, and there are some that overlap, and you've mentioned uh, OCD several times, Hector, Occasionally, and I know uh, um, Todd and I have both seen this several times, we get people who have religious scrupulosity. And we've actually tried to train some of our volunteers about that a little bit, just so we, we, we can help them find the help they need. But I mean, they, they got to, instead of washing their hands, you know, 20 times before they can go outdoors, they have to say the rosary 500 times, you know, or something, something just way off the charts. And uh, there, there's very specific ways that can, that can be treated. But we do get that. I don't know, maybe one in a hundred people that chat in with us will, will display those kinds of, I don't, I could be wrong, Todd. What, what do you think? Is it higher than that? It's rare. It's not very common, but. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I couldn't put a number on it. Yeah, it's not very, very common. Well, uh, we've kind of looked at the questions. One of the things, of course, you know, I'm always into uh, sex and masturbation. And what I saw here was almost half the people are still have uh, shame-based thoughts around their sexual behavior. So I, let's talk a little bit about that, Hector. 
if you were working with somebody who had, you know, Jesus is watching you kind of stuff while they're having sex or masturbating or looking at their porn, uh, what, what, could we, what, what could we say about that? And I know you don't know anything about sex, so <laughs> I should I should reemphasize. Uh, I love both of Hector's books, and I, I want to make sure everybody knows they are the they're the second best books ever written on the topic of psychology and religion. So, thank you so much. Um, you're you're welcome. Well, I'm I'm not a sex therapist per se, you know, but uh, gosh, I mean. Uh, so I don't I, I don't know what kind of clinical advice I could uh, I could give somebody, but but personal advice of just just enjoy yourself. Life is so full of all kinds of miseries that don't don't taint you know one of life's greatest pleasures with guilt. You know what can I say? Well, that's good enough. And some of the treatments that we've talked about are uh, overlap with what a sex therapist might do um, in terms of some of this. Well, we've been gone about 45 minutes. Um, I'm looking at what we've got. Is there any other questions you'd like to, to jump in and look at in detail here, Hector? Uh, I, whatever you want to talk about or whatever the... Well, the panic, the panic attack question, 40%, 39% said they, they have panic attacks or something like that. That's, yeah. that's something that seems to me... I mean, I'm, I'm very interested that in this simple five questions, we have half the people and probably more than half are experiencing some of these symptoms. So how does that relate and where did it come from? It almost always comes out of religious training. I mean, why would somebody be guilty about masturbation? Where'd they learn that? Who taught them that? Why do they feel shame about their bodies? Why do they feel shame about their sex organs? I mean, yeah. that's, that's um, gotta come right, right out of religion. And we talked about fear of hell already, but I want to I want to move that. I think there's also fear of sex, and I think people. I think it can be pretty pretty serious fear of sex, if you will. Oh sure, if I if I have sexual thoughts about somebody, I'm going to go to hell. If I if I have sex yeah. before marriage, I'm going to go to hell. Yeah, and God would not approve of this, you know. So, so where does that come from? Well, you know, I think I I try to answer those questions in, uh, in, in a great deal of depth in, in Alpha God, where I talk about, well, this has really come from, from our primate legacy where you had, uh, you know, dominant individuals dictating, uh, you know, who in the hierarchy has sexual privilege and sexual privileges and who doesn't and mm -hmm. exclusivity and things like that. You know, shame is a way to regulate the behaviors of people underneath or individuals underneath you on the hierarchy. So. so, and I think that's a new and interesting way to frame it. That was what I loved about um, about Alpha God was how you framed sexuality, which is always an interest of mine, and you framed it within a power structure. How how much do you want to throw at us about that? Because I loved it. I thought you did a great job on that. Why why would religious power? What's the benefit to the religious leaders? And I know you. This is second nature to you, but just talk to us a little bit about that. To controlling uh, people underneath them sexually. Yeah, well, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of of, of uh, benefits. I mean, one is to um, uh, one is to 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 keep 
all the sex for yourself. I mean, you know, I, there's such a history of, of, of people higher on the hierarchy and in religious hierarchy um, taking advantage of their position and just having all kinds of sexual exploits with those in, the, in their flock, for example, you know. Um, but, but, you know, if I, if I can skip to something, if I can just skip to something a little different before we run oh. out of time, I yeah, do no. want to talk about the panic disorder because okay. how many people again had, said they had uh, panic attacks? Um, it was 30, uh, 26. Um, so that's like 30%. Yeah, no, 30, 30, 39. Yeah. 39%. Yeah, 30, thank you. Almost 40. Almost okay. 40%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, there are evidence-based treatments for panic disorder. And, you know, I do, I, my specialty is PTSD, but I do, I treat occasional, you know, patients with panic disorder. Mm -hmm. It's called interoceptive exposure. And I tell you, it works incredibly well. If you do just regular talk therapy, the panic disorder is not going to go away. You're going to get panic attacks and get panic attacks. And there's a terrible sensation. I mean, you feel like you're dying. Usually people end up in the ER thinking they're having a heart attack you know, a number of times before, you know, their ER docs finally catch on and say, no, I think, I think you need to go see somebody from psych. So what it involves is misinterpreting bodily cues. So, um, you know, you walk up a flight of stairs and your heart beats, well, people without panic disorder, they're like, okay, well, yeah, I just walked up the stairs or they won't even notice it. People with panic disorder will think, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And as they're focusing on that, and catastrophizing about that, their heart rate goes up even higher. And then they focus on that some more, it's going even higher. And before you know it, they feel like they're dying. But there are, there are very specific evidence-based treatments for that. Um, and uh, it, it involves exposing people to their body sensations. It's, it's kind of bizarre, but having people hyperventilate, having people spin in a chair to simulate dizziness, having people hold their breath until those sensations don't bother them anymore works like a charm. So ask for an evidence-based treatment. Interoceptive exposure is what it's called. How do you spell it? How, is it anterior or intero? How do you intero. I-N-T-E-R-O. Interoceptive exposure. Septive? Like, uh, oh, C-E. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. right. Okay, got it. I'll, I'll uh, link that in the chat. Well, that was one of the one of the values that I was hoping we'd get from our, our discussion, Hector, because you are much more in tune with the current treatment modalities than I am. I mean, I've been kind of out of the clinical scene for, for a long time because I was doing other things in organizational psych. So I'm not as uh, versed in it. And I love, I love that these new things have come along and they've, they've got proven they're viable. We know that yeah. in so many ways. And, uh, and, and I don't, there aren't many people on this planet that can talk about it like you can. So <laughs> I love that too. <laughs> well, there, there are, there, there are many, many people who can provide these psychotherapies. So right. just know that I'm, I didn't invent them. I'm not the only one who does them, but there are a lot of people, but you have to ask for them. You have to ask for them and make sure you do they, they should feel yeah. like training, not just talking. Exactly. And the, you know, a good, that's part of the reason we started the secular therapy project is because there's so many really poorly trained therapists out there. And right. we try to vet all the therapists that come into the STP and we can't guarantee that everybody's, you know, top notch or wonderful in every aspect. But that's, that's why I want to emphasize you have a right as a client 
to understand what the training and what the the approach that your therapist gonna can is trained to do. And if you don't, if you're not getting what you want, you also have a right to say, I don't think this is working and go find somebody else. But I mean, do give your therapist a, a reasonable time. Um, nobody gets cured in, you know, one or two or three sessions. You, you need to give people a time to get, get um, to understand who they're working with and what, what's required. But, you know, you have a right you have a right to ask and they have an obligation to educate you about what their skill set is that I, I am really shocked that dr delray is your statistics on the secular therapy therapy project that therapists who believe that they're secular reach out to you wanting to be on the list and you guys after you vet them you only accept 40 percent of them no we, we reject 40 percent of them 40 percent of them yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it varies. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. But yeah, that just and those are people who think they're qualified. I mean, think of all the people who don't apply to us, because they know they're not qualified. So that just shows how many therapists there are out there that are not well trained. And it's unfortunate because they've spent a lot of time and money getting trained and then they, they, they don't have something that's really of value to their clients or as much value as it could be. Absolutely. And that, that can mean the difference between a lifetime of suffering, a lifetime of continued suffering, and a, you know, a, a pretty brief period of time that can just change your life. So yeah. prolonged exposure therapy, for example, you know, I work with people who get nightmares every night, who can't be in a public place, who snap at their loved ones all the time. And, you know, Vietnam veterans, for example, who've had PTSD for, for 50 plus years. In eight weeks, it's, it's gone. It's done. You know, eight or nine weeks, it's done. And, and these are people I've seen, you know, 15 years after treatment. It's like, Doc, I don't, I don't get nightmares. I don't get nightmares anymore, you know. And for the first yeah. time since I was 18 years old. <laughs> and uh, it works, but you have to get the right kind of treatment. Right. Can't state that enough. And, and uh, you know, obviously, prayer is not going to work to, on PTSD. You know, it's just not. So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of therapists out there and they're not all qualified to treat what you have. So have a, have a good conversation with your therapist. If you need some uh, evidence-based guidelines, contact us. We have a whole set of guidelines that we can give you. And then when you go to talk to a therapist, you can say, here's what I'm looking for. And there, it's not a shame. I mean, it's not a shame if they don't fit what you need or you don't feel like you're getting from them. We don't want to go back to shame-based behavior. We want to, we want to be evidence-based ourselves as, as clients. So I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity here. What I really want to say is I'm looking down through these five questions and I see people who would really benefit from just finding somebody who uses the right treatment approach. And people say, well, I can't afford therapy. I'm not, I don't, we don't get a dime from therapists if they treat you. So I, I just wanted to let you, I'm not pushing, I'm not pushing that. What I'm saying is why suffer the rest of your life? I mean, you just heard Hector talk about somebody who's had nightmares for 50 years. Why suffer when you can go find somebody and they can treat you well and get you on with your life? What is that worth in dollars? That's, that's really my, my big, I, 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 a lot of people come to me and say, should I go to a therapist or not? And I basically say, well, how much is it costing you? 
to not go to a therapist. You've, you've lost three jobs. You've gone through two marriages. You know, start adding that up in dollars and tell me how much it's costing you to ignore your depression or ignore your PTSD or ignore your panic disorder. It, you can put it in dollar and figures. I mean, it sounds crass, but sometimes that's the only thing that speaks to people. Yeah. Anyway. And, and, and you know what? I want to I be clear about something. You know, um, I, I can see the need for psychotherapy, um, you know, for religious trauma syndrome, you know, as, as that may be loosely described, right? Even if you don't meet a specific um, criteria for a specific disorder, like, like such of the ones we've been speaking of. And that doesn't necessarily have to be an evidence-based psychotherapy where you're doing structure training based or, you know, oriented treatments, you know? Um, so, uh, but for those specific disorders, I think it's immensely helpful. Right. Okay. Well, we, we said we'd go about an hour with our discussion between Hector and I, and we're going to open it up here, Eric, to the questions that you guys have um, gotten from the group and we'll see. Sounds good. So uh, one of the questions was, and I was kind of wondering this myself, um, uh, with religious trauma, traumatic, uh, religious trauma syndrome, do either of you think that will ever make it into the DSM? The, uh, the manual that kind of uh, def uh, defines all sorts of uh, mental disorders. I will say this, and I'll, I'll let Hector throw his two cents in. I don't know that it ever will, and I don't really care whether it does or not. What I care about is that people look at how of their symptomology and if it's related to religion, I don't care if you call it religious trauma or not, just get some help. And it, it may make it in someday. I don't know. What do you think, Hector? Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it, it, it will. I don't think it needs to be. I mean, I think they're there. I mean, you know, it's, I think, it's a good way to describe a set of problems, a set of struggles that people experience in religion, such as abuse, such as being ostracized, such as losing your identity, you know. Um, and there are certain specific psychiatric conditions that can come out of that. Um, so I don't, I don't think it needs to be. Um, I, I do think it's important, though, that you have. Um, you know, a population of, of uh, clinicians that is aware of some of the culture and some of the, and some of the um, you know, I guess some of the trials that people go through in religion and in leaving religion and in leaving the social support network that, that comprised their, their religious experience. We had a, uh, I'm sorry, were you finished? No, 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 mm -hmm. uh, I, I interacted with somebody recently. Uh, they had gone to a secular therapist that was in our database and they, they contacted me to let me know the, the outcome of it. But what they told me was they went to this person two or three times and this person, the, their therapist didn't understand, didn't understand <laughs> at all, evidently. And she said it was very frustrating the first two or three meetings because I tried to explain to her the shame I felt from the religious abuse I experienced and it didn't seem to go anywhere. Because she finally said, look, why don't you go do a little, a little research on religious trauma syndrome? She told the therapist to go do some homework, <laughs> which I thought was, that was pretty cool. That, and the very next uh, session, she said the whole thing changed because she came back with a total different understanding of what this person oh, wow. faced 
And she said it was only a matter of weeks till she really felt like she was getting really good treatment. So sometimes our own therapists, our own therapists in psychotherapy project aren't really as aware of this as, uh, as you would think they would be. So I'll be honest. Um, I've been through several different therapists in my life and in different places I've lived. And so kind of what I'm almost hearing from that story is that it's okay to challenge my therapist in some sense, like, Hey, what you're doing here isn't helping me. I've come here for X number of times and this isn't, this isn't, I'm not feeling any better. You need to do better. We need to figure something else out. Is, is that kind of acceptable calling them out on the carpet? I've had a, I've learned a lot from my clients over the years. I don't know about you, Hector, but they teach you a lot sometimes. Every day. Every yeah. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So no, I don't know that you're calling them out, but you're at least expressing where you are and your, your, your level, your feelings about what the therapy's doing for or not doing for you. Mm -hmm. it's, actually, it's actually helpful to the therapist to hear that. Yeah. Dr. Dell, you had a really good write up on, how to vet a therapist to make sure that they use, you know, evidence-based practices. Yeah, and if they'll contact us, we can send that um, that summary uh, out to anybody that wants it. Yeah. So Brian, Brian is asking, why is it secular therapy the default? <laughs> That's a really good question. Because in my estimation, it should be the default. But here's the problem, and I'll, I'll just outline the problem a little bit. In the last, you, you know, we've all seen the political system get infected with religion. We've seen Jerry Falwell pushing the religious right in, and now we've got a president whose top advisors are religious people, and he prays with them and all that sort of stuff. This started back in 1978. It was a long time ago, and it's a long time coming. Well, in the meantime, the uh, religious educational institutions got the bright idea. We don't want people going to psychologists because psychologists will ask, help them ask questions that we don't want them asking. So we will educate our own people in social work and clinical, clinical psychology and uh, clinical social work and counseling and marriage and family counseling. So if you look at Regents University at Oral Roberts University at George Fox University at um, Liberty University, they all now have advanced degrees in counseling, even in psychotherapy. You can get a fucking PhD from Regents University in psychology. Now, a one year of that PhD, wow. one year of that PhD is studying Pat Robertson theology that says God sends hurricanes to Orlando because of the gays. Uh. So these people are leaving with a PhD and they can, they can get licensed. And that was their goal 30 years ago to start putting people in the, in the psychology world that would not challenge the Jesus narrative. So the default used to be uh, secular. I mean, you look back, at, Freud was an atheist. He wrote a book called The, uh, the uh, Future of an Illusion. It's one of the more atheist books you'll ever get. Uh, Jung may not have been an atheist, but he sure wasn't any kind of a Christian. And if you look at uh, Albert Ellis, the father of cognitive behavioral therapy, and my mentor, he, he was out atheist and, and was awarded Atheist of the Year award back in like 1981 or 82. Mm -hmm. So there was, 
psychology is rooted in non, I mean, William James wrote the varieties of religious experience in 1902, I believe it was. And he was pretty much an atheist too. So the roots of psychology, going back to B.F. Skinner, Watson, you name it, you name all the founders and almost all of them were either atheist, agnostic, or certainly not religious. And that has all changed. We're seeing a whole lot of pastoral counseling, family counseling with a religious twist to it. So it's been an infection of religion into secular psychology. That's Daryl's take on it. Hector, you got anything to say about that? Well, if you're if you're going to get if you're going to get um, therapy from a psychologist, look up their credentials. L look at where they got their doctorate and and see if it's an APA accredited institution, American Psychological Association, because there are standards. You know, it's a guild that has certain standards for you know study and and and, and training. So. Um, <laughs> Well, I, I will say, I want to caveat that a little bit, Hector, because we have, I think we've got probably a dozen therapists in the Secular Therapy Project who went to Liberty University or went to Brigham Young University, and now they're atheists, okay? <laughs> it's, so I, I think you're right. I would look at their credentials, but then I would make sure they understand you're an atheist or you're a secular or you're agnostic, whatever you call yourself, and find out if they've got any spiritual ideas, in fact, the, the document that Todd mentioned earlier would be a good document to get from us. How do you vet that, that therapist? But yeah, we do have a few people. Literally, we have, I think she may be watching here tonight. We have a Liberty University graduate that's, uh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, it is funny. <laughs> going back to interceptive exposure therapy, uh, Troy's asking, do I need to expose myself to more religious experiences to get rid of the fear? And, well, it depends on what fear we're talking about. Is it like fear of hell, fear of your religious tormentors? You know, I mean, it just it just depends. You know, and this uh, this question kind of came up with the discussion of the interoceptive exposure uh, discussion earlier. Yeah. Well, usually irrational fears are fears that that meet that you know constitute a, you know anxiety disorder. I mean, it, any kind of exposure just works amazingly well. You know, if 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 you have a dog phobia, for example, well, then then the the, the best most effective treatments with the, the lowest relapses is, is exposure therapy. So you you start out by watching videos of puppies, and then you go to the pet store and peer in from the outside, and then eventually you're petting a dog, and you know that's. You know, and that I think that applies to all kinds of of anxiety disorders, um, whether or not religious fears uh, uh, would 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 respond similarly. It kind of depends on the fear. Okay, got it. Uh, we have um, uh, two similar questions, and it's relating to CPTSD, which I understand stands for complex PTSD, and also RTS. I think that stands for rape trauma syndrome. Um, is that kind of, uh, how would those differ or are they very similar to PTSD in general? RTS refers to religious trauma syndrome. Ah, got it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, complex PTSD isn't, isn't actually something that's, um, that's its own diagnostic category per se, but it, 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 it refers to, um, you know, PTSD that results from repeated traumas. And, and often traumas occurring, you know, throughout childhood and adulthood. Um, so, 
So that's that's what that's referring to. And I don't I think that is also understudied. Um, some people who um, have had traumas across the lifespan, it's just regular PTSD. I mean, most people, I think uh, other people develop, you know, um, personality disorders and personality disorders are just these longstanding um, difficulties relating to other people, difficulties um, in, in their, you know, someone's sense of self, emotional regulation, things like that. Um, um, so uh, it's another area that I think, I think, I think we need to, to, uh, to study empirically to see if it's its own animal and if, if specific treatments work better uh, and in what instances they might work better. Got it. Thank you very much. Uh, we have another question. What, um, so if someone who may be in like a depressive state, like they are withdrawn or uh, they have a severe reduction in, in uh, communication, what do you think would be the best way to support someone like that? Well, uh, I recommend psychotherapy and, and, you know, there are also medication treatments and, and I'm, I'm somebody who, who doesn't, I don't prescribe, you know, I do the behavioral treatment, so I'm not gung ho about meds. I don't think everybody needs to be on meds, but there are highly effective medications to treat depression and, and, you know, SSRIs work wonderfully. Um, there are a class of drugs with pretty low side effect profile and help with depression, but I would reach out and talk to the person about that, bring them into the fold. I mean, interaction, I mean, you know, the, the power of social support is huge. Mm -hmm. That is uh, an inoculation against all kinds of psychiatric problems. So yeah, as I, it seems like um, for me personally, if if I I have a tendency to do that myself, like I will withdraw and and just turn off communication. But there is something about when someone reaches out to me that uh, it, it's like a like, oh my gosh, this person really cares. I mean something to someone. I'm not all alone. Um, is that kind of what you're, you're talking about? Like, like, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we can get into a, a long discussion about, about how our brains evolved. We didn't, we didn't evolve living the lifestyles we, we live today, these containerized lifestyles where people live separately from one another. We evolved in groups of tightly knit people, uh, mm -hmm. tightly knit, small bands of 150 people or so who were tightly knit. They fought, to, you know, they fought wars together. They hunted together. They, they farmed together. They guarded together. They lived together. They raised their children together. And our brains are adapted for that. And, you know, so, um, you know, this, this COVID-19 crisis kind of really underscores the point. I mean, there's a lot of people who are just really suffering deeply because of that. So when somebody's depressed or when the world's on a, a you know, a global lockdown, we reach out to each other. You know, I think, I, I absolutely think that's, that's great advice. Absolutely. Got it. So next question, Marie is asking or is making a statement that she's noticed conversations that churches are hosting uh, regarding religious trauma. Um, do you think that they're self-aware of religious trauma? And what's your impression of churches actually hosting these type of, types of conversations? Well, that's news to me. I, I, I haven't seen that. I'd have to see it. I don't know what they're talking about. But let's just let's just be honest here. As, as I say in, in the very end of my book, uh, the God virus, religion is always trying to usurp science. It's all I mean that's how we get Scientology. 
That's how we get the Church of Christ scientists. All religions want to use science to propagate themselves. And it would not surprise me that they're taking the word religious trauma, and basically they're probably saying, well, you were traumatized by that church over there, but you come to our church and we will help you with your trauma. Of course surprise. the Catholics traumatized you. Of yeah. course the Mormons trauma. Of course the Jehovah's, we are different. We yeah. will traumatize you. We, well, just for example, this is a kind of off topic a bit, but not long after I started, a, a couple of years after I started recovering from religion, I noticed in a search that this a, a recovery from religion group was in, in Chicago. And I thought, who? I don't know anybody in Chicago, and I don't, they don't have a religion. So I, I checked them out and found out they were a home church. They were a home church meeting in Chicago, and they were calling themselves recovering from religion because they're not a religion. They're a relationship with Jesus, you know. I, <laughs> that's the problem is they religion and they're not having relationships with Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, it doesn't surprise me that religions are always trying to usurp and take advantage of, uh, of, of other cultural initiatives of cultural things like recovering from religion or uh, what you were talking about, the science piece, the tra religious trauma. Now, Hector, you kind of talked a little bit about um, how we evolved in, in tight-knit groups. Um, and there seems to be, in, in my mind at least, uh, there is a connection between how we evolved in those groups and a sort of a herd or a mob mentality uh, with, with modern religions. Um, Am I, can you talk a little about that? Like maybe I'm off or maybe, uh, you know, there's something more to, to, uh, to explore there. About, about, uh, the mob mentality of, of the religious right is, is, is that, is that what you're, what you're speaking of? Uh, just how, how would, uh, how do religions or modern, uh, uh, religions exploit, exploit that? Oh boy! Well, religions are nothing if not tribes. You know, they're 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 tribes. They're they're tribes led by usually a headman, and uh, you know, there's uh, I, I I cannot state that more strongly. Um, and I think you know the the way one thing I write and talk a lot about is that in our ancestral past, getting rejected by the tribe. Mm -hmm was a death sentence, you know, because we couldn't survive on our own. You know, life, life on the savannah was perilous. You know? So what you're, you're saying is like, if the tribe, like, let's say I was an asshole, which I kind of am, the tribe like said, ah, you know, Eric, get out of here. Um, you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're lunch for a lion. Lunch for a lion for the rival tribe. And, and not only that, but there's, there's, there's now evidence to suggest that, that there was a lot of execution going on in our hunter-gatherer history. So, so if you acted by tribal members, um, so um, Robert Rangham did a fantastic job of, of describing this in his recent book called The, the Goodness Paradox, where um, that the idea that humans may have in fact um, self-domesticated by executing um, overly aggressive members of the tribe or people who just went against group norms, you know? So what that does, what that did is, is, you know, is kind of pushed a psychology 
that um, really wants to conform to group norms is afraid of not conforming to group norms and even blocks out information that goes against what the group you know the, the beliefs that the group holds because that information can be can be dangerous so um so uh you know that's that's what's known as motivated reasoning like blocking information that causes distress and if you know that if you have an idea that goes against the, the consensus of the group, boy, you, you, you even hide it from yourself, much, much less, you know, uh, the rest of the people in your, in your social group. Got so, it. so I think, I think religions do exploit that. And I think, I think even secular groups exploit, exploit that psychology, but absolutely religions do. Got it. All right, guys. Well, on the last question, and Dr. Darley, I think this will be for you since, you know, we started this conversation on sex. It's appropriate first to end it on sex. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the question is, is masturbation and porn really okay then? Uh, well, let me just express it like this. Not only yes, but hell yes. And if you, if you, want, if you want more information, go look at my talk on the, the myth of sex addiction. I've given that talk several times. Probably the best one was at Tulsa Free Thought Convention about five years ago. It's on YouTube, just watch it. We could, we could spend a whole night on just that. But the fact is humans have been masturbating, animals masturbate, your dog masturbates. I mean, every primate masturbates. Why, are we any, why would we treat it any differently? All, all every chimp masturbates, every bonobo masturbates. It's just a part of who they are. We're all primates, so get used to it. <laughs> Great. And go well, enjoy yourself. You know, I, I had a podcast, I still do, but for years, and I always ended the podcast is give yourself a big orgasm or give somebody else a big orgasm. I don't, that's, <laughs> that's, that's my attitude in life. <laughs> Great. Well, um, Dr. Ray, Dr. Garcia, um, before we uh, sign off, do you have anything you want to say uh, before we leave? Go ahead, Hector. Thank you for the conversation. It's, it's very enjoyable. I love RFR. I love what you guys do. Terrific organization. Keep doing what you're doing. Cool. And, and I'll say people in this time of isolation, please. It's, it's important. And I'll say, go find Hector's book, Alpha God and uh, Sex, Power, and Partisanship. They're both well, well worth, worth reading. After you finish God Virus and Sex and God, then go read his. <laughs> Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, Healing, and Support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering From Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.